0: Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out, starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. I ask myself the same question every morning when I wake up and every afternoon I drive home. Our sons inquire about it when I pull in the driveway, and my wife requests an answer when I walk in the house. What's for dinner? The answer to this question can be an easy one, or one that causes me to rack my brain. It all depends on whether or not one of us has gone grocery shopping. Ah, the magical world of food. Today, we often take it for granted, a luxury at times. Going to the grocery store and having a seamlessly endless array of foods to choose from. Or a chore other times having to find the time to make a list, locate every item on it, and wait in line to pay. Regardless, the food we eat, the way it's packaged, the manner in which it's processed, and how it makes its way from field and farm to grocery store and market, all the way to our dining room tables at night, are often overlooked and might just astound you, amaze you. Surely, without this technology, our lives would change drastically. On this episode of The Missing Chapter, we delve into one of my favorite topics, food. And we ask the age-old question, what's for dinner? This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome back to another edition of the Missing Chapter Podcast. I'm Phil Horner, here with Phil Schaaf. We are sitting down to a nice warm cup of Utica Coffee Roasting Company's Southern Pecan, which, Phil, you said two minutes ago, Oh. Maybe this has entered your top three, your top two. Maybe it's your, even your favorite. Oh, it's been a while since we've updated our top 10 list of coffees. Um, and we've had some different ones since then. So maybe for a future episode. We've drank a lot of coffees yeah, in the last three years. To say the least. Yeah. So maybe it's time that
1: we give an updated version of our top 10 list for our listeners. That's true. And I'll tell you what. Southern Pecan, every time I, I taste it, it's like, oh my God. It says right here, notes of buttery pecans and, and Southern hospitality in each cup. I get it. Yeah. It makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess we could have a huge debate on whether it's pecan or pecan. Yeah. If you're listening and you actually know the difference, yeah. pecan, pecan, unless it's a regional thing, Well, someone, feel free to reach out to us. Yeah. Someone explained this to me one time. and said, well, you don't say like, I can do something, right? You say, I can. I'm like, I No, I say
0: icon. Do. You no, do? No, no. Really? I okay. that's-
1: yeah, that's... <laughs> All right. So we
0: digress. Anyway, we do digress and coffee. I tell you, what, we're talking coffee. We're talking, you know, we're in the midst of a of an education week here and we we have a very big announcement. We have a big announcement that we've been holding on to. And we reached out to this person last week and made it official. But we do want to congratulate our hometown history winner, Miss Dawn McKinney uh, from Auburn, uh, California.
1: Dawn, yeah, she's yep. a
0: sixth grade ancient history teacher at 12 Bridges Middle School in Lincoln, California. And she did a, a great write-up, a great story for us. Um, we look forward to working with Dawn in the future. More impressive, it sounds like she is an incredibly passionate teacher. Yeah. And, um, and she enjoys sharing stories from the missing chapter with not only her coworkers, but with her class. So we'd like to be able to integrate and integrate her class. Into our story as much as we can. I think that's kind of our plan for things.
1: And because we we are obviously teachers, and because we've had family members who are teachers, parents mm-hmm. who are teachers, uh, you kind of you you get the the passion for education. You get the passion for kids when you talk to somebody. Right. And and Dawn was one of those people. So her write up was was phenomenal. So Dawn, if you're listening, we are so excited to uh, to have you on board. And uh, listeners, uh, stay tuned because we're we're going to have her on an episode uh, fairly shortly. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's some, you know. Let's talk about that for a second too, because it it blows my mind that uh, we here in upstate New York have fans across the nation. It's it's awesome. It's refreshing. We got a uh, a random email from uh, a, a missing chapter listener, a, a rookie, if you will. Yeah. But yeah. I tell you what, he said he he binged all three seasons, um, and what he said verbatim was that it got him through his twelve hour shift. And to Robbie Secker, if you're listening, my man, thank you so much for the email. Uh, he's out of Wisconsin. Yep. And uh, we uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen to our stories and, and um, keep the history tradition uh, going. Yeah, thanks again, Robbie. And Robbie had a great idea for a future episode
0: that I think definitely has some some legs to it. He was he wanted us to to maybe look into Native American names of towns and villages and cities and which, their true meanings. Which us in Canada, there you go. I think that's a great idea, Robbie, and and that's something we'll definitely. Uh, take into consideration and, and think about we hey we're gonna be doing this for a lot more seasons guys. let's hope
1: anyway yeah let's keep so it going. somewhere
0: down the line i think that ha- definitely has some uh some possibility to it
1: so phil let's let's get into this episode because i'm sure the title uh has encouraged some people to click mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um i we say this all the time i don't know anything about this other than what you've recorded in the intro uh really excited so take it away You know, Phil, I think this
0: is one of those cases that from the time we wake up in the morning to the time we go to bed at night, we could get in the habit of really looking at every facet of our life and asking, when did we start doing that? Who created that? When did that system get developed? And that's kind of the the road I went down with this particular story. But it's going to start in 1886 Mm -hmm. with a young man by the name of Clarence Birdseye, who it seems really from a very young age, had kind of a naturalist's curiosity. He had uh-huh. a love of food, and he had a very strong entrepreneur desire. At the age of 10, he was an avid hunter and already started exporting live muskrats to various countries to profit from their hides and started teaching himself taxidermy. Huh. So kind of an eccentric yeah. young man. Birds Eye studied science in college, but was forced to drop out for financial reasons. Having to support himself, he joined various scientific expeditions that took him to many far-off remote places, including one place in particular, Labrador, Canada, where he spent several years laboring in the fur business like he had as a younger man.
1: Okay.
0: It was on one of these trips that Clarence Birdseye began experimenting with whatever fresh food was available and immediately on hand. In the Southwest, Birdseye ate slices of rattlesnake.
1: Oh my fried
0: and pork fat. Yeah, some really crazy combinations here. Listen to this. From his station in Labrador, he would write letters home describing more exotic meals, like lynx marinated in sherry, meats of porcupine, polar bear, and skunk. So he was just trying to be creative. And I think he was probably bored. And there weren't many options in this far-off
1: post in Canada. Uh, I'm just I'm telling you right now, my wife and I love. Going out to dinner, we have some great restaurants in Utica, New York. Utica is kind of known for its food. If we ever get to a restaurant and they're serving lynx or skunk because they want to be creative, I'm leaving. I'd probably go with, especially the skunk. Oh, my (laughs) God. So, uh, listen, I'm hoping it was more out of sheer necessity than it was. I think that's part of it. And curiosity. But the Long Labrador winners also
0: taught uh, Birdseye what it was to crave fresh food and introduced them for the very first time to how these foods could be preserved and consumed at a later time. Uh Up until this point in American history, we're talking mid-1920s, frozen food was a last resort. This is not something like we think of frozen food today, all right? When frozen food was thawed, it tended to become mushy and and much less appealing, Mm. even more so than canned food at the time. But in Labrador, George Birdseye, was learning from the local Inuit tribe on how to fish trout from holes carved in the ice and almost watch it freeze instantly in the air. The air temperature registered right around 30 degrees below zero. So by the time you extracted the fish and it was still wet, it was almost freezing instantly in the air. That's
1: crazy. All right,
0: which is crucial to all of this. But that's only half the magic that Birdseye was learning. The second key component to all of this that he would soon discover was that when the trout was thawed, it tasted delicious. It tasted fresh. It tasted like it had just been caught. Mm. All right. So the Inuit process was the same with their other meat and game, which they kept fresh for months in the hard packed snow. It did not go bad. It did not taste bad and equally as important. It didn't lose its nutritional value. Mm. Birdseye deduced two key components to this process. Number one, the key to success was to freeze food very fast, almost instantaneously. And number two, freeze the food at very low temperatures. Both prevented large ice crystals from forming. And this is important because those large ice crystals could damage cells, and also be responsible for giving much of the frozen food an air, a very unpleasant, mushy texture and destroy, you know, the molecular composition of the food.
1: Which really makes sense. Number one, when you mentioned the trout coming out of the water, right. almost instantaneously freezing, I immediately go to, you know, in upstate New York when it gets super cold, you see people, you know, boil some hot water. And then go out on their back porch and throw the water and right, immediately right. it turns into snow. Yeah, in the dead ice, of January right? and February, yes. you
0: walk outside, you almost feel like, oh, my gosh, this you're freezing instantaneously. Yes. Yeah.
1: And you see those videos where just, you know, the water turns immediately to snow or ice. Now, the second thing is I immediately go to, uh, you know, like when, when something gets freezer burned mm-hmm. and you see those crystals forming. It, it does. It changes the flavor. Right. You can tell right away if an ice cream or whatever has been freezer burned. Right. And what's interesting too, Phil, is that here he, he's discovering things
0: that are, quote unquote, new to him. But this is what the local Inuit have been doing for generations that's upon true. generations. So it's yeah. not new to them. He's just learning from them. And I think that's kind of cool too. But yeah. it's that instant, instantaneous freezing that keeps the texture from becoming too mushy and unpleasant and from bacteria, you know, from ruining the food. Right. So for bird's as quickly as he was learning about food and freezing, uh, being able to see where all this would lead him was taking him a little bit longer. He and his family returned to the United States in 1917, where he worked as a, at a series of different jobs before eventually joining the U.S. Fisheries Association in Washington State, which was a lobbying group. And it was while working with them that the big bird's eye idea first began to take shape. And he would take the bird's eye name into the next century. Bird's eye acknowledged that the technology behind properly freezing needed to to be made accessible. Accessible to the everyday family who could use this knowledge and technology to advance their lifestyles. He realized that the way to expand the market for fish was to develop the means to pack. And here's the key. Then transport this food over long distances in what he referred to as in compact and convenient containers and then distribute the meals to individual customers with its intrinsic freshness intact. So it's an entire process. The food is caught, processed, travels, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of miles on a rail, goes to a market, gets sold to a consumer. And then by the time you get it home and are ready to prepare it, it's still fresh. That's, and when we think about it, even saying it right now, that's, that's amazing, yeah, right? That's really is. something we take for granted, I think. And this is all around what time period? You're talking like mid, mid-1920s. Now you're into like the, yeah, mid, like right around 1920. I mean, refrigeration and freezing processes then mm-hmm. are, are at its infancy. Absolutely. And that's going to be really crucial to all of this because people buying into his technology and what he's telling them will happen is completely different than what you might anticipate. So Birdseye experiments with his own containers to chill food at first. But when that failed, he started thinking about what he learned in Labrador, again, from the Inuit. And the more he thought about it, the more he became convinced that quick freezing had huge potential that could potentially revolutionize the food and market arenas. In 1922, Birdseye left his job at the Fisheries Association and set out to create a business essentially to find a commercially viable way of producing large quantities of fast frozen fish, still focusing entirely on fish. Even if he didn't pioneer the actual freezing, Birdseye had to pioneer most everything else in this process, which included everything from the boxes he packed the fish to in to the machine that froze them and everything in between from waterproof um, inks and glues to scaling and filleting machines. All of this stuff had not been invented yet. The entire process from start to finish was all connected. And if an error existed in just one step, it would doom the entire
1: process. So here's something I I just got to mention. Yeah. As you're talking about this, all I'm visualizing, I'm visualizing Mm -hmm. a lot, but as I'm visualizing, you know, this process of, of choosing all these different things, my wife and I order HelloFresh every week. Yeah. We have three meals that come, you know, and it's it's named HelloFresh for a reason. It comes fresh. It's in a box. It's got packaging. They change the inside of their packaging all the time because I'm sure they get complaints about this right. isn't fresh. This isn't fresh. This spoiled whatever. So, I mean, they're constantly evolving and this is 2022. Right. So for this guy to figure this out using Inuit practices from centuries ago, yeah. that's
0: and, and that's remarkable, you know, Phil, we, we shop a lot at Trader Joe's and it that's, it's, what's great about Trader Joe's is, there's a lot of frozen meals. They're easy to make during like a school week, but it's, it's so much taken for granted at my end. Like you yeah. grab something out of the freezer, you open the package, you put it on the uh, stove and it's ready in 20 minutes. And what you don't realize every minute detail to this process had to be created. Right. And like, we think, okay, the food itself is frozen, but the packaging, the ink, the seals, those all had to be tested so that one piece of this, you know, formula breaks down, it would kind of, everything would fail around it. We wanted to make sure that that didn't happen. Another
1: part of this that's so impressive is that I I think there's an an old saying that, um, you know, the, the the pioneers are the ones that make the biggest mistakes, mm-hmm. right? The, the ones that really are are the trailblazers. They're the ones that make the biggest mistakes, but they're the ones that are remembered because right. they are the the trailblazers. For this for this guy to go through this huge process, this learning curve, to to fail a few times before he sends it out and still be that successful, and we're still talking early twentieth century. That's a that's uh, yeah. And he's he's drawing on no
0: real work from people before him. This is right. all. Yeah, his original ideas and thoughts.
1: Testament yeah. to his his bravery, his courageousness, yeah. his
0: resiliency, too. Absolutely. Yeah. And it really did revolutionize the food industry. So Bird's eye started to realize a few things. The fish had to be frozen in small por- portions, both for speed and because he wanted to sell it to individual customers. Okay. He also worked to eliminate the small air pockets that, that were beginning to collect, primarily in, in whole fish, and that could harbor bacteria and lead to decomposition and food illnesses. Yeah. So, a key step of of his original 1924 process called for filleting the fish, which was an unusual thing to do in the 1920s, and it had to be done by hand. But this stage allowed the fish to be packed especially tight into small rectangular fiberboard boxes. All right. At first, Birdseye put these boxes into long metal holders that were immersed in freezing calcium chloride. But three years later, in 1927, he applied to patent his multi-plate freezing machine. So he's taking all of these separate processes and realizing, if I can create a machine that can do all of these, it'll be more efficient, it'll be more cost effective, and it's going to save us a ton of time. So this invention, along with the process which went with it, became the basis of the new frozen food industry and remain the basic commercial
1: freezing system for decades. Hello, everybody. Welcome back from break. Phil, love the story. And I, I'm going to say something that I've, I've heard from some of our listeners, including some of my own family members. Mm-hmm. I love the variety of our show sometimes. Um, you know, I've, I've listened to a lot of podcasts. There's a lot of different... Uh, history areas where people become experts in a specific time period. And I think one of the reasons why we started this is because we love having conversations with people. We love really kind of the eclectic unknown stories, right? That's the whole essence yeah, of our podcast. Yeah. This is one of those things where I've never heard of this guy. I've never heard of, of Clarence Birdseye, but I'm going to remember him now. And, and this is the, this is the part of, of what we do here that I, I have. So I get so much enjoyment out of now. As you were talking about this in, in, in the middle of the break, actually, I had this little epiphany where I I think of this guy and I immediately go to his last name, which I think is very fitting. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the bird's eye, it's almost like he has this perspective. Why was he the pioneer of such a, a process that, you know, right. other people have known, but he's the one that kind of, I don't know if you want to say commercialized it mm-hmm. or you know definitely could he perfected it. perfected it right, it, right? I, you could say you know like henry ford didn't invent the car but mm-hmm. certainly had a way to to use it for the masses right could he essentially be the the henry ford for the the, the food processes
0: i, I, I and, and when you think about it phil like I'm, I'm glad you said that because his work is in a different field but like it's just as admirable as somebody who you know did anything else in the automotive industry the space industry all these you know glorified areas for right, rightful reasons. But like you use his technology every day, right? Every single day, this man's work, you know, is, is literally in front of us affecting us, how we live our lives. That's true. So, you know, the machine itself, you know, was, was a key component to this. And once he had the machine working properly, it opened a lot of doors, but not a lot of those doors are going to remain open. And I'll explain that to you in just a minute. In essence, the machine that Birdseye created squeezed waterproof cartons holding two inch blocks of fish between freezing plates. And these freezing plates were kept between anywhere between 20 and 50 degrees below zero Fahrenheit for upwards to 75 minutes. Wow. All right. The cartons never came into contact with the refrigerant and the compact packages were suitable for marketing to individual customers, which is what Birdseye was targeting. Yeah. After a few tweaks, Bird's Eye's new machine could be used to freeze not just fish, which he had intended, you know, entirely focused on, but anything from berries and bananas to pork sausages and steak fillets. Wow. So unfortunately, like I kind of alluded to, not everyone was ready for this new technology. And the concept of frozen food and food that could travel hundreds, thousands of miles and still be edible turned many people off to this early idea. Bird's Eye's haddock fillets were slow to catch on, people distrusted frozen food. Hmm. Railroads. This is interesting to know. Railroads worried that they might be sued if the fish thawed in transit, and public health officials were divided on things of bug like bugs and germs. Yeah. So we're still we're we're learning about it. So stores had nowhere to store the frozen fillets when they arrived.
1: Customers had no way to keep them frozen when they purchased them and brought them home. Ah, uh, see that. That's, that's the part where, where, as I mentioned before the break, the, the infancy of, of, you know, frozen technology, right. freezing, uh, having huge freezers in your garage or your basement, or even just refrigerant, you know, trucks and trailers, right. you know, and, and trains, you don't have that kind Our of technology. Our country wasn't there. No. It just wasn't there. So it's his technology,
0: Phil, was literally and figuratively ahead of the time. Right. Yeah, to a point true. where it's, it, it, could be, it could have failed. The boxes piled up in the factory, bird's eye began losing large sums of money. And eventually sold his company, ready for this, to the Post company. What? Right. We think of Post, we think of the cereal, right? So to win over customers, Post had an idea. And this is one of the reasons Post is going to invest money and take a chance on this. Because at this point in the infancy, this could have failed. But Post had an idea. They had a game plan. They started with 10 stores. 10 stores in Springfield, Massachusetts in March of 1930. And they provided these 10 stores with display freezers, okay, ones you could see into. They put their staff through a three-day training course and offered the food on consignment.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: All right? These included 27 different frozen items. Um, Bird's Eyes original haddock fillets, porterhouse steaks, spring lamb chops, loganberries, raspberries, spinach, and June peas advertised, ready, as gloriously green as you will see next summer. So they're really playing up on the fact that, listen, this stays fresh. This stays edible. You're going to be able to see it, which I think most of us agree, right? You open up a package of frozen food. It looks good.
1: Right. It looks frozen, right. but
0: it looks like freshly picked. So gradually over time, because of the work that the post company did, the world came to realize that frozen food, it was safe. It could provide an appealing, a more uh, nutritious alternative to canned Salted and smoked foods, which especially now we know, really not healthy at all. It overcame the limitations of local and seasonal food in unprecedented ways. Stores and domestic kitchens kitchens began to acquire freezers, Mm -hmm. and the turning point, which if you know history, was after World War II. Right, right. Frozen food got a huge boost. The baby boomers, you know, people building houses that wanted not just the amenities but things that made life easier and more enjoyable. And it became you know, possible to put entire meals on the table without women having to spend hours in the kitchen.
1: That's amazing.
0: So it even helped shape current school lunch programs because options expanded. The availability of different foods went up. But the Amer- it, it took the American family to change in order for his invention to truly come to fruition. So there was no going back at this point. And many historians argue that by modernizing the process of food preservation, Birdseye nationalized and then internationalized food distribution, facilitated urban living and helped to take people away from the farms and greatly contributed to the development of industrial scale agriculture. You could produce more now because it wasn't going to go to waste. Right. People felt safe from moving to cities because as long as they had a freezer, they could at least eat fresh. So there's no denying that Clarence Birdseye revolutionized not only the food industry but fill our civilization which is amazing to think he, the impact he had on our culture right the manner in which we live eat
1: associate with one another has never been the same it's so, all because of frozen food this is this is unbelievable i so a couple things now you got to think the population of the world in 1920 i i haven't done a, a google search yet but i'm just thinking well, Let me look it up here. Probably. All right. So I just, I just Googled it. It's around 2 billion people Mm. and we're up to 7 billion. Now you got to think for, for a minute, that's a massive gap, right? What an increase from, from 2 billion to 7 billion people in that amount of time in a hundred years. Right. That's insane where they're living, what they're eating. And we always tell our our students, listen, when you have food production goes up, what happens? Population Population goes up. And of course, food production goes down. It's a direct relationship population would go down because food production is going down and essentially people starve. How do you feed 7 billion people? Right. You could effectively say that this guy, this unknown guy had an indirect or maybe even a direct result in increasing the the population. So he's not just changing people's lives. He's changing the the trajectory of the world. Right.
0: And you think about the freezing process. It It was created for fish. It expanded into, you know, a variety of different frozen foods. But that same process would would work its way into the, the medical field, oh, being yeah. able to keep various, you know, vaccines and, and medicines That's for a point. You know, that technology, it's intended for one purpose, but the, you know, its success will lead to success in other fields as well. But I just find it fascinating. It met the demands of the changing social culture. Yes. That women listen after World War II, their their role in the household changed. Right. They don't they're not going to be in the kitchen all day. They have other things that they can and want to do. Right, Meals still have to be prepared
1: quickly for a family and frozen foods, you know, enable that to happen. What a concept. Yeah. I never, I never thought this was the direction that you were headed when you started this. Right. And this is, this is great. And you know what else too? I don't want to go back, but I, I thought about the process of, of him squeezing the water content mm-hmm. out, but still maintaining the flavor. Right. Because a lot of the flavor, and you know, is, is in the, the, I don't want to, and for lack of a better word the juice of the right. of the meat you know what i mean and it's one of the reasons why they tell you not to to press on the mm-hmm. burger as you're grilling it right cuz all the the flavors in there the good, good stuff the yeah. good stuff right so he he found a way to get rid of the water content so it freezes properly at the same time keeping you know the water yeah out easier while said than the flavor done. in right. you know what i mean i, I this is just uh, a very eye-opening and a phenomenal episode. This well, is great. You.
0: Yeah, and hopefully as listeners, guys, when you're sitting down to, to dinner tonight, you're opening that bag of frozen vegetables or, or whatever you're preparing, think of Clarence Birdseye. Thank you for joining us. Until next time. I'm Phil Schaff And I'm Phil Horander. Another chapter has been added to the History Textbooks.